0: The Animals Love letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi Presented by Catherine Bucknell Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi Music by Edmund Julloff If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it,
1: and subscribe to it. Episode 8, Our Play. Don left London in early November 1968 and spent most of the next six months at home in Santa Monica with Chris, who, at nearly 65, was a hive of activity. In addition to working on Kathleen and Frank, he had adapted for the stage George Bernard Shaw's story the Adventures of the Black Girl in Her Search for God. The play opened in Los Angeles on March 19th at the Mark Taper Forum. It was a popular success in the age of the civil rights movement and the rise of Black power. Susan Batson, who played the Black Girl, was to win the 1969 Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Best Performance Award. Topping this, Cabaret, the musical, was such a huge hit that plans were afoot to make a movie version. The stage musical won eight Tony Awards, including Best Musical, Best Director, and it was a hit all over again in London when it opened there. It remains one of the top 10 ever Broadway shows. It looked as though the animals would have another chance to collaborate on the screenplay. They met with yet another British Antony, Antony Harvey, who was the proposed director. Harvey had just been nominated for an Academy Award for directing The Lion in Winter. Meanwhile, in England... Richard Buckle, the ballet critic who had designed the wildly popular exhibition of Cecil Beaton photographs at the National Portrait Gallery the previous year, and who was always a kind and supportive, as well as incredibly useful friend to Don, had arranged a very grand portrait commission. Don was to draw the Earl and Countess of Harwood. Harwood was a first cousin of the Queen in line to the throne. He was a patron of opera and he's known for his expert updating of the main guidebook to opera, Kobe's Opera Book. In later years, he became managing director and chairman of the English National Opera. The Countess was an Australian violinist who bore his child out of wedlock in 1964, waiting until 1967 for his first wife, Marian Stein, a concert pianist, to accept a divorce so he could remarry. Harwood was banned at court for about a decade over this behavior. Don delayed traveling to London because he wanted to work with Chris on Cabaret, but developments on the film project were slow, partly because so many people claimed rights in the material, so he finally left Los Angeles on April 17th. As soon as he left, the sale of the film rights went through, although the deal to make the film still wasn't final.
2: Wednesday, April 23rd, 1969. Santa Monica, absent Angel, I didn't get to write to you yesterday, chiefly because I knocked the phone off my desk and broke it and had to stay home while the repairman came. And that meant that I had to have Michael Sean and Seth Finkelstein to tea up here instead of going down to their place. And that meant that they stayed two hours and Seth was almost silent while Michael bored me silly with stories about Uncle Filthy, who is my least favourite non-fiction character. The rest of the day was really quite busy... I had lunch with Kimis Hendrick, that Christian Science Monitor journalist whom we met at King Vidor's. When he invited me, I imagined he wanted to talk about Black Girl, but no, he wanted to admit to me that, though married, he had always been a queer at heart, news which surprised rather than thrilled me. Then I went to KHJ and appeared with Susan Batson on Tempo. Michael Hall was hovering rather ineffectually around – Like in all those studios, there are lots of young persons pretending to be producing something. Susan looked marvellous and was very articulate, and altogether, I rather adored her. The show is now quite a hit, and every performance ends with a discussion with the audience, something which has arisen more or less spontaneously. Also, all the later notices in local papers, even including the free press, were excellent. And we will even have a replacement for Douglas Campbell as Bernard Shaw and God. He's said to be first-rate and much thinner and younger. It is a shame it can't run for another month. Instead, they're pushing in some tired frog farce after May the 4th. From the broadcasting, I went on to Robin French's office and signed the cabaret film sale papers. It seems we shall really get very little, about six or seven thousand a year for six years. Still in all. I am a camera only netted ten thousand altogether. And we may get more from the Cinerama lawsuit, or if it is found that Macy has no claim on the movie money. Julie Harris won a Tony for her Broadway play Forty Carrots. Did you hear? I sent her a wire from both of us. I took old Joe Mazalink to the Fuji Gardens on Monday night, which she liked enormously but she dropped a tear or two into the tempura. She says if she can't have Ben, she doesn't want anyone. This is a threat. Oh, God, I get so impatient with her, and then I remember how desolate I am without my darling. Miss him so when I'm in the kitchen early and there's no one to pop out and scare old plug, and when that sacred dear fluff scratches on Dub's door to be let in, and when... But Dub mustn't continue. "'Tears are flowing fast. "'This morning he was very good "'and went jogging on the beach with Jim Bridges "'to get rid of the big dinner up at Four Oaks "'which Gavin bought him last night. "'They're so much better now that they have an upstairs room. "'Quite snug. "'Christopher Weddow was with us "'and the atmosphere was very happy, "'but not, I felt, lover-like. "'I asked Gavin what he had been doing "'and he didn't say one word about Mexico, "'so maybe that trip was cancelled. Jim is very busy conferring with Tony Harvey about Tony's love life. Dan Tondevalt sounds the most businesslike bitch in the world, but he claims he only wants security and loves Tony nevertheless. Jim thinks that Tony is going to take on Cabaret, but he is awfully cagey. I'm sure he knows something he mustn't say. Well, patience. I dread the boredom of the Writers' Conference in Santa Barbara on Friday, Saturday. And then there's that horrid surgeon for Drub's hoof next Wednesday. But Drub will get Kitty's permission first, he promises. I'm picturing Kitty on some royal cushion. No letter today or yesterday. Let's hope for tomorrow. The weather is by no means great. Sunshine, but windy and chilly. Going to Vedanta Place tonight. Dabin is praying that he may see his angel cat soon.
1: Joe Massalink was a swimwear designer to the stars. Ben Massalink was a novelist and TV writer. She was about 20 years older than he was, and this age gap was one reason the Massalinks were among Chris and Don's closest friends in Santa Monica Canyon, even though they were straight. In December 1954, the four of them had taken a long holiday together as the Masalinks did every winter. They drove to Mexico City, spending a month on the road, sightseeing, sketching, swimming and fishing along the way, and returning in January 1955. That trip south of the border had given Isherwood his first vision of down there on a visit. The Masalinks never married, although Joe took Ben's name. Eventually, Ben left Joe and married a younger woman. The surgeon was to decide whether Chris needed an operation to remove the lumps developing in the palm of his left hand. Chris had Dupuytren's contracture, a thickening and tightening of the tissue in the palm and fingers, which can cause the fingers to curl in like a claw, starting with the pinky.
3: Monday, April the 20th, 1969, Leeds. Dearest Drubkin it is 12.45 a.m. A distant, lonely firkin is sitting up at a dear little night desk, accidentally enough in front of a tilting mirror, in Harwood. The train journey took four hours, an hour and a half more because it's Sunday, so only arrived shortly before 5.30. Lady Harwood and four-year-old child met me at the station, apparently recognising me, a big black portfolio I carried was a hint, from a meeting in 1961 with the Tynans and Joan Littlewood, an evening we all spent together having dinner in some King's Road restaurant. What she, in fact, remembered was having met a dear old horse who had made quite an impression on her. She had not, at that time, married Harwood, in fact, she only married him two years ago, though they have a four-year-old son, a fact they both refer to this evening, though Buckle had already filled me in beforehand. I gather quite a scandal, even for nowadays. Buckle told me that Benjamin Britton, a long-time friend of Harwood, told him to his face he'd never see him again because of his actions. Britton has, I'm told, remained a good friend of the first Lady Harwood. The current one is an Australian, very lively and talkative, an easy averter of awkward silences, a great appetite for life's challenges, a grabber of bull's horns, short-haired and well-seated. Will be difficult to draw. He is a perfect cross between Milton Burl and Chester Coleman, if you can imagine an English aristocrat being exactly that. Never has the psychophysical analysis been more certain or more revealing. He too is likable and talkative, thank God. Even so, it has not been easy. The real fun begins tomorrow morning. God help a very tiny kitten who is also expected to draw the four-year-old. To bed now, an especially small trundle bed in a cozy little room with a ticking antique clock. Kitty is prepared for the morrow if prayers and facial isometrics are sufficient preparation. Kiss, 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 kiss. furkin.
1: Don found the sittings excruciatingly difficult. Nonetheless, the Harwoods liked him and liked his work. Later, they asked him to do more sittings in London.
3: Tuesday, April 22nd, 1969. Darling Dumpkin, I'm on train heading back to London. After all Kitty's harsh words, old Harwood was very nice this morning and gave Kitty a personally conducted tour of the house instead of answering a large pile of mail which arrived this morning and I know was weighing on him. Then he drove me into Leeds to catch my train. He seemed altogether more sympathetic and harassed old Pooch faithfully guarding the family house. The Chester Coleman Milton Burr likeness still seems profound and alas, appeared even stronger in yesterday's drawings. In contrast to Harwood's semi-transformation, the little master would barely speak to me at breakfast this morning and formally gave me a goodbye handshake only when bidden to by his mother. Until then, we only regarded each other sulkily from across the table. Oh, I am so relieved to be away from there. Though this morning's tour was of interest, especially since I'd read through a guidebook Buckle had edited and given to me before I left London so at least I had a vague idea of what I was being shown most of the time. The paintings are the most distinguished and dullest kind of masterworks, but the Adam ceilings are pretty, and the Chippendale, if not nearly as ravaging for me as it seems to be for others, is at least impressive in its workmanship and variety of design. But, oh the weight and gloom of the place, with all of its objects and furnishings, the slow, grim hell of possessions, and the heavy yoke of position and responsibility they impose. And as though he hadn't suffered enough, Harwood started a collection of Leeds pottery only two years ago. He already has a whole great caseful. What is attractive is the country itself, It's a very big estate with brown or pale green grassy slopes and hills, dotted with black sheep and edged by woods. A pretty artificial lake, too. Old Dubbin could have grazed quite placidly or cantered gracefully in and out or up and down, tossing his mane in the misty air. Frazzle firm misses him so. (laughs)
1: Richard Buckle may also have had a hand in the decision of the National Portrait Gallery in London to buy Don's 1967 portrait of Whiston Auden, a pen and ink drawing. It was, as Chris crowed when he heard the news,
2: His first sale to a public gallery.
1: Recognition from a national institution certainly impressed a lot of people, and the LA Times noted the acquisition in its calendar in early April. Don was modest, telling Chris it had been chosen as a portrait, not as a drawing. He finalized his arrangement with the head of the NPG, Roy Strong, while he was in England this trip, and delivered the truly exquisite drawing in person on April 22nd, reporting to Chris... Dr.
3: Strong, I think, really was impressed by the original. He'd forgotten I'd written about the size of the drawing and was surprised to see how big it is. He remarked what a good postcard he will make. Only drawback is that it won't be exhibited till Whiston's dead, NPG policy, and I could not get cash for it, so an international money order is being sent to Santa Monica.
1: He was again making his London base with Anthony Page, but about a week into his trip... Don wrote to tell Chris that he'd moved out of Page's flat that very morning and moved in with Buckle in Covent Garden.
3: Friday, 25th of April, 1969, London. Treasured steed. A day of upheaval. I quite suddenly decided this morning to leave Ladbroke Grove. I felt very uncomfortable with Antony for several days and I knew there would be a row if I stayed on. "'Wanting to avoid that, I asked Richard Buckle if he could put me up for a while. "'So I'm now set up at Henrietta Street, which is very pleasant, "'if staying with other people can ever be pleasant. "'At least there are attractive views of Covent Garden, etc., from the windows. "'And Richard is very sweet. "'I've not told him why I left Antony's, nor has he asked. "'Antony has been in a terribly tense state "'due to the collapse of the Women Beware Women production.' Under the strain of these last few days, really since I got here, being with him has been very difficult. He has very little idea, I think, of what he's like, and so it's almost impossible to talk to him. And I knew that even to attempt to tell him how I felt would only have meant a quarrel. So I packed up and left while he was out to lunch today, leaving a brief note to say where I'd gone to. I hope he won't be angry or upset, but even if he is, I can't help it. It seemed the best, if not the only thing I could do. We've been finding it increasingly difficult to get along together. In fact, the only way we could manage it was for me to keep my mouth shut. The fact is, I think we are chemically an unsafe mixture. And being as we were in very confined quarters, there was bound to be an explosion if I didn't get out. I am very sorry in a way, but glad at least to have found this out without too much unpleasantness. I can't help feeling a sense of relief i asked him in my note to leave any letters for me downstairs in the hall so kitty will collect all horse messages but write to me care of buckle 34 henrietta street wc2 from now on kitty needs so his old naggins encouragement with all of a kitten's loving heart as always t <laughs>
1: By contrast to Page, had proved by now that he was an entirely safe mixture with Don. Nothing was as important to him as their relationship, neither his work nor his religion. With regard to his religion, he understood his love for Don as a way of expressing his devotion to Ramakrishna. His professional achievements and the fresh opportunities they brought just now, the exciting cabaret job, worked like a lodestone, helping to pull Don home. But it wasn't over yet with Paige.
3: Tuesday, April the 29th, 1969, London. Old satin ears. I was quite worried last night that you might have tried calling me on Sunday and I wouldn't have known because I was at Richard's place in the country. I'm glad to know that, as of this morning's letter, nothing definite has happened. I know you may call any day now. Of course, I will come as soon as I can, if necessary but I hope it won't be before Friday, as I must stay here till then or else pay the regular fare. I drew both the Harwoods again yesterday, and to my surprise, the drawings were a great success, as far as they were concerned anyway. They called Richard last night to say they're delighted and want to buy both, and the drawing of the little boy as well. Harwood suggested £400 for the three to Richard, which is £100 more than I would have asked myself, so I wrote a note today to say that would do. Saw Patrick Woodcock last night. He is still in love with David, who was both TB and a lover, but doesn't see him and is suffering. He was very sweet and we had a nice evening. He roasted a chicken. Today went to Marguerite's for lunch. She had Lady Caroline Blackwood Freud Sitkowitz, Casmin's Hockney Gallery partner Sheridan Dufferin and wife, and Patrick Proctor, who Marguerite had never met. The party was a great success, particularly for Marguerite and Patrick, who got along marvellously, rather to my surprise and certainly to my relief. Caroline looks much older, but quite wonderful in a way. She's turned into quite an original sort of English eccentric, with a quirky walk and unbalanced stance and very black teeth. Even the Dufferins were quite pleasant. I forgot to tell you, I think that Marguerite has, believe it or not, got her friend John Foster to buy the Hockney painting of us for her birthday Sunday. I don't know whether I'm pleased or not. I'd rather begun to see it in my mind's eye in some terribly distinguished museum. But she swears the deal has been made. I stupidly forgot to send David Hockney an opening telegram. Yesterday, was it? Did you think of it? I'm going off now to a Wheeler's restaurant in the Brompton Road to have an early dinner with Anthony, who has to give a lecture on Godot at some school. He is going to Devon tomorrow to stay with Alfred Lynch and friend without a certain cat's company, so Kitty is ready for his return to the casa. Though, as usual, as he begins to ready himself to go, drawing commissions begin to come in. Think of the commissions I'll get when I give up portrait drawing altogether kiss, 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 your third equestrian, temporarily unseated.
1: The portrait of Chris and Don was being exhibited in a show of Hockney's work at the Andre Amrick Gallery in New York, April 26th to May 5th. The National Portrait Gallery had considered and decided against buying it that April, just after they bought Don's Auden portrait. Brigadier Sir John Foster, a lawyer, actually a barrister and a human rights activist, bought it from the gallery. Marguerite's husband, also a barrister, had worked closely with Foster, and they remained close. So for years, the painting hung in Marguerite's house. Then she loaned it to an exhibition, and it was never returned to her. Foster died in 1982, and the painting was claimed by his estate, Mysteriously, Marguerite did not press her claim. Did the painting in fact still belong to Foster? Did Marguerite fear that so lavish a gift to her might suggest that she and Foster had been lovers? Foster's estate sold the painting and it changed hands several times until it was bought by the Swiss financier, Gilbert de Botton and his first wife, Jacqueline. When they divorced, she kept the painting. For some years, it has hung in her apartment across the river from Tate Britain and the National Portrait Gallery. It wasn't seen in public for 25 years until she loaned it to Tate Britain for the 2017 Hockney Retrospective. The National Portrait Gallery eventually acquired a 1976 Hockney lithograph of Chris and Don. (laughs) April 29th, 1969, Chris telephoned Don in London to say that the cabaret film deal had at last been signed. The animals had been hired to write the screenplay. Chris had already been to MGM to watch the film of I Am a Camera. It was time for Chris and Don to get to work. Don went to Devon with Anthony Page to stay with his friends there after all, and he spent at least one night with Page back at Ludbrook Grove, but he kept his promise to Chris and flew home on May 6th. That summer, the animals made a three-week trip to Tahiti and Australia, where they visited the set of Ned Kelly, and discussed with Tony Richardson yet another script on which they might collaborate, based on Robert Graves' novels, I, Claudius, and Claudius the God. From Sydney, Don phoned Page and arranged to visit him again in London from August 18th. Don's first business on arriving in London in August 1969 was to push forward a meeting by the river in the hope of a London production directed either by Anthony Page or Jim Bridges. Various producers lined up to back them, actors were suggested, everyone was juggling other commitments or hopes. Many of the possible participants were close friends. Timing and sensitivities were fantastically complex, and Don's opinion shifted constantly as to who could be trusted, who was any good, who was a friend. There was a lull in correspondence when he felt he was making no concrete progress.
3: Friday, August the 29th, 1969, London. Dearest love, Cobb, I have not written before now because the situation here changes from day to day, if not from minute to minute. After our telephone conversations on Sunday and Tuesday, in which we decided to back Jim Bridges, what does Jack Larson do but call me up on Wednesday to propose a highly confidential heart-to-heart in which he more or less advised us, unless we really, really want Jim, to drop him? His reasons were mostly practical and quite convincing. No New York producer was likely to accept a package deal, including Jim. Chances of a proper, legit production in L.A. had been exhausted with the possible, but by no means sure, exception of the Huntington-Hartford Theatre in Hollywood. Jim, by his own admission, felt very intimidated by the London scene, and Jack thinks he will have trouble getting any first-rate English actors to work with him. Also, Jack feels that American and English styles of acting are so different that English critics, and maybe English actors and producers as well, will be unable to accept Jim's ideas. Of course, I am interpreting and, of course, editing drastically Jack's remarks, but that seems to me the gist of what he was trying to say. It is possible, too, that Jack's intention might be to save Jim from what he thinks will certainly be another London disaster for him, as much as to save us from disaster. I guess that the agreement between us and Jim, which Robin French is drawing up, will not be valid until I have signed it, too, so we will have an opportunity to discuss it when I get home. In the meantime, the situation concerning Anthony and the play could not be more ambiguous. He has still only read part, if any, of it, and I can't pressure him any further because he is immersed in troubles with Nicol Williamson, who is behaving quite madly. As of this morning, the Macbeth production is off because Anthony feels he can no longer cope with Nickel. I have told the producer, Clement Scott Gilbert, that we are seriously considering waiting till March or even April for Jim and he is very dismayed. He has in the meantime given the play to Alec McCowan, who might be free for a January 1970 production, and is still hoping to ditch Jim. K.
1: Jim Bridges was in London directing Jack Larson's play, Cherry, Larry, Sandy, Doris, Jean, Paul, for a one-week run before taking it to the Edinburgh Festival. The play was in rhymed couplets of iambic pentameter. Opening night misfired when two actors missed their entrance cues and the others ad-libbed in ordinary prose. Despite this, there were some good reviews. The London negotiations over a meeting by the river dragged on until Don finally went home to Los Angeles to get on with his painting. In January 1970, he and Chris returned to London together to continue trying to get their play staged, and they made some significant changes to the script in response to requests from directors and producers. After two months, Don went home again to Los Angeles for a show of his work at the Irving Blum Gallery. His affair with Paige had faded away, and the animals now switched roles, with Chris fighting their corner in the London theatre world while Don set himself to a work routine at home. Prospects for staging A Meeting by the River continued to deliver excitement and frustration. On April 2nd, Chris wrote,
2: No more news about the play, except that Richard Chamberlain has now, of his own accord, asked to read it. Nothing heard yet from Ian McKellen or from Terry Hans, the possible director. A nice note from Dirk Bogart, claiming that he likes it enormously but is doing no more stage acting. He also implies that if he were doing any, he'd be afraid of another queer part. Says he's done his bit in that direction. He's now at Venice, filming Death in Venice.
1: On April 5th, he reported brand new interest from Germany.
2: Now the German theatre at Dusseldorf has allegedly offered us a world premiere of our play. That would be in German, of course. I talked to Edward Albee about this, and he didn't poo-poo it at all. The zoo story was done that way also a Beckett play, don't know which. He says it creates great prestige and is covered by the British press too. But he says it should only be a European premiere so we can reserve the right to do it here first, in English, if we want to. What do you think? I'm going to find out more and ask around. There's no hurry deciding.
1: Chris didn't feel the least discouraged by directors and actors turning the play down.
2: April 7, 1970, London longed for firm. I'm writing this at a table in a post office just off Regent Street, amidst a whole bunch of rather sympathetically giggling Dutch girls, sympathetic chiefly because one can't understand what they're saying. They're all writing telegrams. I'm in Regent Street because I've just been to the BOAC and got a reservation for Sunday, April 19, flight 591, arriving LA, 5.50pm. So that's that, unless circumstances change the plans, which doesn't seem likely at the moment. Ronald Eyre, who directed Three Months Gone, has just turned the play down, saying that it's too literary and doesn't have any conflict. But you know, I am now more than ever convinced that the play is good, and so I feel strangely exhilarated, as I often do when I'm convinced that the others are wrong. Also, I feel that all these minus votes are preparing for some big plus in the near future. All dubs love. XXXXXXXX.
1: X, 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 X. The others were Chris's imagined opponents outside the private animal world he shared with Don, often straight people, but more generally anyone with a different, more conventional outlook. <music> Chris's next letter to Don reported that Dodie Smith and her husband, Alec Beasley, completely dismissed Eyre's opinion of A Meeting by the River. The Beasleys were the couple who had first suggested to John Van Druten in 1951 that he make a play out of Chris's Sally Bowles. Dodie was a very successful novelist and playwright, author, for example, of The 101 Dalmatians. She knew something about making a hit.
2: April 8. 1970, London. Darling Snowtail. Was hoping for perhaps a word from my angel to cheer old drub's path through life until the blessed 19th. I think the mails are being delayed. They've kept writing to Kitty nearly every day since the 2nd or 3rd, and will continue to do so. I'm now definitely going to see my brother Richard again on Monday next, the 13th, staying till the 16th, then back here for the last three days. What do you want done with your drawing paper, which was left down in the workroom? I presume you'll say, leave it there with a note to Bill Harris asking him to keep it till I'm in London again. Otherwise, I would have to buy a portfolio to carry it home in. Oh, joy, a lovely letter just arrived from Firkin. As I wrote this word, Mrs. G, who is cleaning, scratched the door exactly the way Kitty does when he wants to be let into Dobbin's workroom, made old horse's heart jump. Dodie and Alec seem really to like our play, though Dodie admits to being somewhat put off by the distasteful subject of God. She thinks it is very well made. has lots of conflict, and the two parts excellent for actors and the dialogue not literary. And she doesn't see why it shouldn't have a West End success. Her only criticism is that Oliver should sell the reasons for living a monastic life a bit more energetically and lucidly. I think that's true. All my love and kisses for that only treasure.
1: A Meeting by the River was staged successfully in Los Angeles at the Mark Taper Forum in April 1972, directed by Jim Bridges. From there, it was briefly mounted in sketch on Broadway, opening on December 18th. Audience response was good and reviews were warm. Chris and Don started working on a screenplay which Jim Bridges hoped to direct. There never was a London production.
0: The Animals, a selection from the book The Animals. Love Letters between Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, presented by Catherine Bucknell. Simon Callow as Christopher Isherwood. Alan Cumming as Don Bacardi. Music by Edmund Jolliffe. If you like this podcast and think more people should hear it, please rate it, review it, and subscribe to it. Join us for Episode 9, A Meeting by the River, directed by Anthony Page. The Animals Podcast is produced by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Recorded in London at the Rhythm Studio with James Carey and at Heavy Entertainment with David Roper. Post-production by Toma Run. Editing by Catherine Bucknell and Shani Erez. Website by Zenobi Purvis. Podcast conceived by Joe Rodota with Catherine Bucknell. We would like to thank the Huntington Library, San Marino, California and the Wiley Agency. Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, Penguin Random House, and Farah Strauss and Giroud donated rights for this podcast, which is underwritten by the Christopher Isherwood Foundation. Special thanks to cast and creatives for donating time to this podcast. Copyright Don Bacardi, Catherine Bucknell, and The Animals Podcast 2017.
1: Height of World War II, Christopher Isherwood, a pacifist, spent a year in a California monastery before deciding that he couldn't take vows as a Hindu monk. 25 years later, he published a novel about the continuing struggle between his two selves: the man who craved spiritual illumination and the man who craved the fulfillments of the world. A meeting by the river is Isherwood's daring, ruthless and joyfully comic meditation on the question of whether God exists. Two brothers confront each other in a monastery beside the Ganges. One plans to renounce the world. The other tries to stop him.
2: Oliver, how lucky you are to have a brother like me.
1: Dominic West stars as Patrick, irresistibly charming and accustomed to success. Patrick, why are you
0: going to Calcutta? I must know why he's doing this.
1: Kyle Soller is his younger brother, Oliver, committed to a path of anonymous devotion.
3: God is either nowhere or everywhere.
1: Penelope Wilton is their mother. If this new religion of yours is any good, why don't you use it to help me? Who is right about love? What does it mean to be saved?
3: Are you going to tell him about us? Are you mad? He's a monk. When don't
2: monks know the facts of life? They try hard to forget. Them.
3: Oh
1: Patrick! Directed by Anthony Page, adapted by Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi from Isherwood's last novel, A Meeting by the River. Join us for the culminating episodes of the Animals Podcast.
0: Sooner or later, you
3: might have to ask yourself if there wasn't some truth in what I believe. Considering your way of life,
2: wouldn't that be a bit inconvenient?
1: Listen online at theanimalspodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at Animals Podcast.